0: Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Insurgent Architects House for Creative Writing podcast series. My name is Larissa Lai, and I direct the Tea House Project as part of a Canada Research Chair in Creative Writing, which I hold here at the University of Calgary. I'm Hong Kong Chinese by way of Kumaye, Biotuk, and Coast Salish territories. I currently live on Treaty 7 land, where Tea House also makes its home. Tea House specifically acknowledges the Blackfoot Confederacy, comprising the Siksika, Bigani, and Kainai First Nations, as well as the Sutina First Nation and the Stony Nakoda, comprising the Chiniki, Bearspaw, and Wesley First Nations. We acknowledge also the Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. Podcasts are produced and edited by graduate students from the English Department here at the University of Calgary. You're just about to meet one of them.
1: Hello, and welcome to Tea House Talks podcast series. My name is Mahmoud Ababneh, and I'm a research assistant for the Tea House project, the University of Calgary. Today, we present our last interview with this conversation between Larissa Lai, Rebecca Gillian, and Micah Jacobson, we come to the end of the Tea House journey. In this interview, Larissa Lai talks about her experience running the Tea House and how it feels to come to the end of this project. The interview also explores the connections between Tea House and Lai's creative work. The episode also discusses the struggle between being responsible for and holding on to old conditions and embracing new ways of being. Lai negotiates the inclusion of spirituality in her works. Micah Jacobson is the author of the essay collection, Modern Fables, and the forthcoming story collection, Good Victory. Her work has appeared in Joyland, The Fiddlehead, The Misery Review, and Lit Hub, among others. In 2022, 2023, she was the postdoctoral scholar at the University of Calgary, where she co-directed the House. Rebecca Gillane works as an instructor and editor in Calgary, Alberta. Her poetry has appeared in literary journals across Canada, including the Malahat Review, CV2, The Radial Fence, and others. She recently completed a postdoctoral appointment in the Department of English at the University of Calgary, where she helped run Tea House. Larissa Lai is the author of nine books, most recently a novel entitled The Lost Century. Recipient of Jim Duggan's Novelist Prize and the Lampada Literary Award and the otherwise another book and a finalist for seven more. She was recently a Maria Zambrano Fellow at the University of Huelva in Spain and Canada Research Chair at the University of Calgary, where she directed the Insurgent Architects House for Creative Writing. She is currently professor jointly appointed to the Department of English and University College at the University of Toronto and serves as Richard Charles Lee Chair of Chinese Canadian Studies. We hope you enjoy this episode.
0: Thanks, Rebecca. (laughs) Thanks, Micah. It's so nice to be here.
2: Yeah, it's so nice to have you back in Calgary. Thank you. For just a short time. Such a
0: short time, but it's great to be back.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for doing this interview with us.
0: Oh, my pleasure, Micah. My pleasure. Thank you for doing the interview with me. (laughs) Yeah.
2: (laughs) So this will be the final capstone podcast oh interview. my goodness i know and so tea house is ending and this will be the last podcast episode to come out and so we'd love to just talk to you and pick your brain about tea house about sure. your work and it's really bittersweet because it's lovely to celebrate yeah,
0: with yes so great and it's so hard to see the project come to a close we always knew it would Mm-hmm. But it doesn't make it any easier. I know. Oh.
2: It's sad. It is sad. It's <laughs> it is
0: sad. It's, you yeah, know, I'm really <laughs> feeling just, I don't where did all the time go? I
2: know. So much to look back on, though, that I think you've accomplished and with the team of grad well, students. We accomplished together, didn't yeah.
0: we? I mean, really. You know, yeah. I put, I set up a bunch of conditions, but this was such a collective and collaborative project from the very beginning, even though it changed a lot mm-hmm. from beginning to end. We figured out a lot of things. Yeah. And the project grew and changed as well yeah, absolutely. over its duration as I was trying to sort of imagine what it could be. And as I was working with different students in different moments and depending on who was working on the project, too, it opened up different kinds of possibilities.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And we've kind of worked at Tea House, Mike and I at different periods. And so, I think Mike has seen some different things than I've seen and vice versa. Yes. And so we've all kind of seen the evolution a little bit. So, I'm going to kick us off with a all question. All right. Well, let's go. <laughs> so, the last 9 years have been a very prolific period for you creatively. In the time since Tea House began in 2014, you've published two novels, The Tiger Flu and the Lost Century, which just came out, and one book of poetry, Iron Goddess of Mercy. Has running Tea House influenced your creative work in this time, uh-huh. or conversely, has your creative work informed the shape of Tea House? Or so, what's the connection between the oh,
0: two? Oh my my goodness, Rebecca, that's a really great great question. <laughs> that's a hard one too, because it really that it really is a reflection question, isn't it? And I mean, you know, in all this time of just being in the thick of it, it's been so intense. From the very beginning to the very end because we were there was so much invention to be done in relation to tea house, but also in relation to my, my creative work, which had gone on hiatus. The job that I was at previously was at UBC and it was um it was critically focused and so I was much more focused on writing criticism when I was in that job. And coming here gave me the possibility of returning to the creative practice that I love. And that was really that was really wonderful. Have the two influenced each other. They must have but I haven't thought about it. I mean, they must have. You know, what I'm conscious of is the way in which the work here in many ways returned me to an earlier moment in my life. So in a way, it was like a, you know, a return in my late 40s and early 50s to my 20s, mm. which was much like this in structure, although not quite so accelerated. This has been really accelerated. In that time... As in this time, I was struggling and enjoying, but not in a, wasn't like being at a party or you know having a restaurant meal or drinking a bottle of wine or something. It was, it was hard, a difficult kind of enjoyment. It was enjoyment. Trying to make sense of the relationship among the various aspects of this kind of work. And for me, the way that that started, so I, I had some inkling that I wanted to write, But it it didn't seem in those years to be a a possibility as something that one might do with one's life until I encountered a community Mm. of people who were doing this kind of work together. And getting drawn into that community, you know, in my early 20s and seeing the way people did the work collectively and that community also it wasn't just writers it was creators of all kinds so in fact i was taken under the wing of video artists and um, installation artists and curators and organizers first and then oh actually that's not true at the same time as i was taken under the wing of Mm -hmm. of writers and so for me there was this whole at that time a concatenation of kind of community involvement which led to a relationship to a kind of politics, a kind of aesthetics, a kind of collective community practice, all rolled together, of which writing was a part. And when I came here, I felt like, you know, at a very at a very different stage in life, having completed a PhD, obviously, and having worked for seven years, eight years. I was at UBC, can't remember seven or eight. Anyway, where it was a much more sort of formally constrained way of working. And I realized how much I'd been missing this earlier way of working. And so when I came here, I thought, what I really want to do is bring the practice that I learned, you know, in the artist-run centers and in the little sort of ephemeral collectives, and just the informal relationships and um, the little projects and things that I had engaged in the late 80s and early 90s, I wanted to bring that way of knowing in here. Because I think if there's something that's special about the way that this kind of work has unfolded in Canada, unlike the U.S. or the U.K., which I think the Academy took this kind of work on much sooner, and so the practices in the U.S. and U.S. and U.K. are in many ways much more developed than they are here because they did that in the 80s and 90s. Where in the universities here, those kinds of practices were not completely shut out. There were little pockets of it unfolding. But so much of it unfolded, you know, on the street. So in arts communities rather than in the university. And that, for me, that time, it was such a, it was a time of such a tremendous and important education for me. I learned so much from those artists and writers that I knew in those days. Many of whom didn't have PhDs. It wasn't a goal. It wasn't an interest. and, And in many cases, it wasn't. It also wasn't available. It wasn't available to them. And yet they were doing all the thinking. They were doing all the living. They were doing all the feeling. They were doing all the making there on the ground in really kind of material ways that were, you know, really wonderful pedagogically for a young person like me and showed me how I could have a life doing this kind of work in a way that was, you know, that was really heart resonant. But, but also creatively resonant and until it wasn't, it wasn't like it was you know intellectually or creatively nab- nabby-pamby. I mean, you were thinking until you know you were thinking until your hair was on fire. but it wasn't thinking without the body. The body was always key. And so that was something that I was very conscious of wanting to bring with me when I came. But I was also conscious of this neglected writing practice, and it was really important to me to, to be able to have that engagement again and to be I was really missing making things. but I, I was trying when I was there. And it just sort of didn't seem, it wasn't coming together, wasn't coming together, wasn't coming together. And when I came here, I I was determined to do that, too. Still struggling for your question. Like, Mm -hmm. what is the, like, what, so did they feed, I mean, if there's something that's unfolding in the two novels, it's, both novels are about the lives of communities. Mm -hmm. And... There are multiple voices running through both novels, and actually, even more so through the poetry book. is just a concatenation of voices without any markers to say the voices shift. Now it's just this flood of voice that's just now I'm this persona, now I'm that one, now I'm this one, now I'm that one. It's constantly turning and churning. So I guess if there's something unfolding in both practices, it's this sense of relationality, this sense of the necessity of being really able to attend to more than one subjectivity. And obviously this is really difficult because we get into these questions of appropriation and all of that, you know, and, and also difficult questions around things like empathy and compassion and all of those terms that we use to think about how to be with or beside others that we never really get to have without there also being a power relation. So one of the things that I found very very hard about the work at Tea House was that that power relation was always there and I mean as you know Tea House is really it's interested in anti-racist work I mean we've all all of us have been doing it at the same time that it's interested in aesthetics and so it has to be conscious of these power differences it has to listen well it has to have some awareness of a kind of unfolding ethics that never really, it doesn't, an ethics that doesn't lay down rules, an ethics that doesn't necessarily land. So, in recent, in recent times, borrowing from Fred Waugh and um, Joan Redlock, I've been calling it poethics because I sort of find that that kind of literary creative mode of being in the ethical is way more productive than, for instance, a, a religious mode or a mode that some belongs to some kind of pure politics. Everyone might want to imagine that. I don't want an ethics that lays down rules. I don't think that's Mm -hmm. useful. And yet, an ethics is absolutely important. And so how does one have such a thing? And so if there's something that's crossing through the work of Tea House and my creative work, it's a constant attention to that. And a struggle with it. And a a despair at ever getting it right. Mm -hmm. And yet, the necessity to kind of constantly be practicing it, whether you get it right or not. Like You're in it. You're in these relationships. There's no... Not being in them if you're going to make this work, which means that you have to be practicing this ethics all the time. Mm-hmm. And yet, you know, and, and you can't get away from the power relation. And for me, the, in that conundrum, there was a lot of agony. You can hear there's a lot of agony. I really struggle, I guess, because I'm so aware that there is no doing any kind of cultural work without violence There's no doing that. It's not possible, regardless of one's embodied position. But depending on one's embodied position, that violence appears differently. And so you're always thinking about, okay, well, what about this body? What about the history it comes out of? What what, what it's feeling right now, what it's going through, what its affects are, who it's in conversation with? All of those things play into how all of that unfolds. And you you never get to leave that difficulty. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so it's agonizing. I find it really painful. I deeply desire to resolve it, and yet I fully understand that this is something that never resolves. And that actually that the minute you think you've arrived at a resolution, you've arrived at fascism. Mm. So you better not want that resolution too badly. Mm-hmm. And so I think if there's something that's running through all of the creative work and Tea House as well, it's a concern with that problem and, and an attempt to unfold it in a way that is the best that I can make it mm-hmm. in any given moment. Knowing invariably that I'm due to fail, right? That there's going to be moments when I F up and somebody has been, you know, harmed that who didn't need to be or something unfolded that, you know, could have unfolded differently. And one must take responsibility when these things happen. And um, so a big part of it also was because I think in my younger years, I... I was. I've been aware of these problems. I think, for whatever reason, too sensitive or something. But I don't think too. I think these kinds of sensitivities are actually necessary. So I'm joking a little bit. But I've been aware of them enough for long enough that at other moments in life, I would prefer just to not act in order to not cause harm. Mm-hmm. But in this moment in life, I sort of feel that it's not that I'm any less afraid of causing harm. It's that. I'm aware, because of having been doing it for a while, that I have things to pass on. So there's a responsibility. Mm -hmm. And the responsibility to do the work doesn't outweigh the danger of the harm that it might cause, but maybe it balances it. And it sort of seems to me that, you know, if I'm not doing this and if I'm not... Trying to lay conditions in place for others. And also, if I'm not modeling something, not that I think I'm modeling anything, you know, I'm not modeling anything ultimately good or angelic or perfect or anything. It's just trying to model a habit of living or something. I have to believe that it's better than some other habits of living, even if it's not the best habit of living that exists out there. Mm-hmm. So, all of that. Is there in everything Mm -hmm. and all of it is um it's it's hard and it's stressful and yet it seems important and it seems you know and as I'm getting older as well it seems really all the more so important to pass these practices on Mm -hmm. to other generations because I see other generations also struggling with these problems Mm -hmm. and struggling for solutions and resolutions and arrivals and not being able to find them and beating themselves or beating one another or both Mm -hmm. right and that also distresses me gosh it sounds like I'm doing so much work and it's so distressing but it's also but it's also fun we've also been having fun right it's also been fun and we've we've made so much possible so many voices have come to the surface through this work yeah and that's important and gratifying makes me happy I was just saying to you before we turn the microphone on that you know I've been mostly listening to the podcasts all along but I've been catching up this morning and I'm just so blown away by how good they are they're so good they're so good. Like all of the interviewers and all of the interviewees and the unfoldings of these conversations are just, just extraordinarily beautiful. Mm-hmm. and it makes me really happy yeah. to, to hear to hear them and to hear people working through these problems too, mm-hmm. from the various locations and from their own sets of concerns and mm-hmm. ways of knowing and so that's amazing.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. What strikes me too about the first part of your answer about coming back to this point in your life when you were surrounded by a writer artist community that we're working from the ground up is like you also <laughs> wanted to create that with Tea House, maybe for yourself, but also for the grad students, other other people in the department, other writers in yes, the community. Yes, And know. so it kind of that connection strikes me as being there too. That that you built the context and environment that that would give you inspiration as well. In yes, a sense.
0: yes, yes. And it had to be something living. Mm-hmm. So I mean, what w- the first thing that I had to do when I arrived here was write a grant for Shirk always fun. <laughs> you know, when I was just listening to the interview um, between uh, Omar Ramadan and uh, uh, Danya Idris, and where they're talking about, the, you know, the dread and the horror of writing grants and all the jargon you have to use and how disingenuous it all seems and the despair and rage that attaches to that. And yet, you know, Shirk and the Canada Council and these various funding bodies provide the economic conditions that, mm-hmm. you know, until we're free of capitalism, mm-hmm. that make it possible for us to do this kind of work. So the first thing I had to do when I came here was apply for the grant for the CRC. Mm. And I was just looking it over last night and in, in preparation for this interview, just to sort of check in and see what was I thinking, mm-hmm. you know, when I first arrived. And for sure, the, the certain questions, you know, that were, are on the table now were on the table then around thing around questions of justice, around aesthetics, around utopian thought, by by which I simply mean, you know, a consideration of our ideals and a recognition of our idealism and a consideration of those ideals and where they come from and where they fall apart. That's what I mean when I'm talking about utopias. So all of those things, and I had all kinds of ideas. You had to propose them, right, for various projects I would do, a reading series, a symposium series, an online magazine, and then an interest in a set of theoretical concerns that are also lived concerns. And in the grant, a lot of it is sort of directed towards questions of land and life and sort of earth connected connectedness. In addition to questions of you know race, class, gender, social questions, we're all They're all sort of meshed together in in the grant. But when I arrived here, what I found on the ground was something quite different in terms of what other people were interested in. Because we were in the thick of Me Too, and I think here in Canada, here in Calgary, there were some very unsettling gender politics unfolding that um, were causing quite a bit of upheaval in the community. And it seemed to me when I arrived, the first thing I need to do was just start talking about gender because something is was very unhealthy on the ground here and. People, it was it was not, nobody was in a good place around it. And so I remember Colin Martin was the, was the RA at that time, and we organized two events on two Valentine's Day, two back-to-back, one year after the next, I mean. It was called Paper Hearts, mm-hmm. a Valentine's Day round table where we invited people of various genders to talk about the problem of gender violence, because that sort of seemed to be the thing, mm-hmm. you know. So that was not something I had planned to do before I came, mm-hmm. It's not that I don't think about gender violence. Of course I do. But it wasn't in the forefront of my mind in that moment. But when I got here, it was like, this needs to be addressed. It needs to be addressed. Now let's just go Let's just go do it. Mm-hmm. And let's set it up in a way so that, you know, Larissa's not the authority of anything. Goodness only knows. But to set it up, to make it possible for, you know, a range of voices to be speaking around the problem in some measure of a, you know, um, doesn't have to be friendly, but it just needs to be even keeled enough that we can have a conversation to figure out what is happening here, mm-hmm. and it was so productive. I remember after the event, community member, somebody who I had known uh, in Vancouver for a long time and who I had seen involved in community, um, but coming up to me and saying, "Larissa, like I've never been to an event like this before in my life." And I how can that be? You know, this person was in their thirties at that point, and you know, not old but not young either. And um, I was like, "Oh my goodness, this is you know." How can that be? We need. This is what we need to be doing. Mm-hmm. We need to be doing these kinds of things. And so indeed, yes, it sort of seemed to me that in a way when I arrived here, I came in with some sense of wanting to do this kind of work, and then the conditions were immediately presented to me where it's like, here's something that's slightly to the side, but related to what you've been considering, where it just needs to happen now. And these are the voices, and you can't know what the outcome is going to be, but this is how it needs to be set up. Mm-hmm. And um, we've been working that way ever since Mm -hmm. around different, you know, topics depending on the moment, sometimes because something else is burning and it needs to be addressed and sometimes because we've been interested in something and wanted to sort of take the whole crew there. And so we've done, we've done it in Mm -hmm. both ways. Mm -hmm. But yeah, to me, I mean, it's become a kind of tea house method, hasn't it, Mm -hmm. in a way? Mm -hmm. Um, This, this way of sort of no tea house person steps in and takes the authority, Mm -hmm. but I think we've become halfway decent at setting up conditions for conversations for like productive conversations. And that these are the things that sort of out there in the broader public and in many academic spaces as well and in many you know smaller cultural communities people are struggling for these tools mm-hmm. and between the sort of drive of the media to sell whatever it is they need to sell papers television shows social media platforms or whatever and universities to hit metrics or whatever it is that they're, they're trying to do no one is really making this kind of work a first priority And so I feel like, I mean, you know, and it's not as though we're outside of that economy. So, you know, like there's certain things about the way that we're entering into those economies that's made it possible for us to build this little bubble where we can do this kind of work for a bit. And hopefully, you know, the work will exceed Mm -hmm. the limits Mm -hmm. of the bubble and help with conversations where otherwise people would just be bludgeoning one another over Mm -hmm. the head with whatever... You know, rhetorical or other mm-hmm. implements, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's, yeah. Thank so, you. So yeah, well, thanks for the question. It's a great question. <laughs>
3: it's so wonderful to be in a room with you. <laughs> <laughs> it's
0: wonderful to be in a room with you, Micah.
3: Um, Rebecca, I might just jump around a sure. little bit if that's okay yeah, with yeah. you. Okay. Um, so, Larissa. In your tremendous new novel, The Lost Century, one of the central characters, Emily, says to her sister Violet, this is a quote from the novel, A new world is coming in which we will be free from all those dreary, oppressive old ancestors. Just you wait and see. Emily's desire to cast off history has some unintended and disastrous consequences. But the novel also shows how both custom and ancestry can be oppressive and stilting. How has the work of Tea House navigated this difficult terrain of respecting what's come before, while also embracing new modes of being and thinking? Oh,
0: that's such a great question. Thank you, Micah. That is a great question. That's a great question. It's something I struggle with very much. You know, um, I mean, I think that one of the things that my immigrant parents, my immigrant parents who are also philosophy profs okay I've come from a very unusual Hong Kong Chinese family. Um, my immigrant parents who are also philosophy profs really wanted for me to be free of those oppressive old conditions that you know we are seeing resurfacing in various Asian contexts now in ways that are not lovely mm-hmm. and um, that I, I do indeed find deeply concerning. And then by the same token, I'm also very aware of the way in which European colonial projects, and I, I say European because I want to be aware as well that there was such a thing as Asian colonial projects, and that that's one of the things that the last century is also concerned with. Um, so really clear, uh, really wanting to be clear that the condition of being Asian is not an innocent condition in any way, shape, or form. But that said, it's also a condition that's been subject to colonial European colonial processes. And so thinking about Emily and Violet, too, in that late, third, late 1930s, early 1940s moment in which the novel is set, that they, these will be very much questions that they're thinking about, too, right? That mm-hmm. they're inhabiting this Chinese colonial modernity in which they... And their family members, including their father, who is a patriarch. And yet he's also imagining a possibility. She's trying to imagine, to the best of his ability, possibilities for Chinese women. He's not very good at it, but he's trying, and he doesn't, he has no tools. So he's just, you know, scrambling, as they are also a, two very different, they're sisters, but they're very different kinds of women, trying to find new ways of being women in that historical moment. And um, so indeed, Emily, who is very much a romantic dreams that, you know, that this horrible patriarchal, Confucian patriarchal past can be cast off, and and it would be possible for a woman like her to be free, by which, for her, it's to have all the possibilities of heterosexual romance. So she's not free of it at all, <laughs> but she dreams of it as a kind of, of freedom, and, and there's a sweetness to the dream, even as it causes her all kinds of, you know, terrible grief and harm. So in relation to Tea House, this is a very different moment, you know, like a hundred years later, almost a hundred years later. And yet we're still struggling with the same questions of how do I get rid of the worst parts of traditional patriarchy, but also somehow try to get myself free of this colonial project that's been trying to destroy my culture? And what do I do when my culture is this, you know, in part, this horrible patriarchal thing? Like, what do I do, right? This is sort of, in a way, a rock and a hard place, which is not to say that that's all Chinese culture is. It's it, it, obviously it's this deeply complex contradictory, multivalenced thing that varies from one historical moment to another, as any culture does. It's, if, as long as it's alive, it's moving and changing, right? So if there's a question at work for Teahouse in relation to tradition, I mean, I think what, you know, a lot of the sort of anti-colonial, anti-racist, and justice work of the last few decades, at least, if not 100 or maybe 200 years, depending on who's counting and how you're counting and who you're reading and how you're reading them, that that desire to to ha- to sort of hang on on the one hand and to, ha- to hang on to tradition on the one hand and to leave behind on the other to break free of colonization on on the one hand and I don't think to hang on to it but maybe it's not so much that one wants to hang on to it but one has to be aware of one's own imbrication in its processes so you can probably hear beneath my thought that I'm thinking about indigeneity a lot right and I'm Really recognizing the profound ways in which Chinese Canadians, among other racialized people, but depending on how you're racialized, the form it takes is different, have been implicated in the colonial project and implicated in the th- land theft and, uh, and genocide, and that we need to be responsible to and for that, but from where we are. And so when I'm saying, I do want to throw out colonization, but I also recognize that we're kind of always already mm-hmm. in it and implicated in it, and implicated in really specific ways because of what we're inheriting. So, we, so it's impossible to just say, I I cease to be colonial now. I throw the mm-hmm. colonial out. Mm-hmm. It's it's because it's in the body. Mm-hmm. We learned that from Judith Butler, didn't we? Mm-hmm. Bodies matter. So, they're set. We're set the, the way that we the, what, who we are in the body, in the way that the body's read, in the way that it presents, in the way that it reads, in the way that it speaks has everything to do with the way it's been called into being iteratively Mm -hmm. over time. And so it's recognizing all of the complication of all of that, right? And then so what we were talking about earlier around seeking an ethics, that's what makes Mm -hmm. it so difficult, Mm -hmm. is it's really hard to extricate yourself from any of the stuff mm-hmm. the stuff you want to throw out especially and then the stuff you want to keep you try to keep but what it is what is it that you're trying to keep and then as i'm attending to you know indigenous friends colleagues elders who i see how do i say this without I don't want to um because it's not my struggle right i don't want to appropriate that struggle but by the same token need to be able to speak to it because I think about it a lot. It's a relationship that matters to me. Um, And I see that within that formation, differently depending on the nation one belongs to, but also how one is called into one's indigeneity, I think I perceive a desire to hold on to some aspect of tradition that from my Chinese-Canadian location I must respect because people are saying, we need to do this. It's like, okay, you need to do that. Go crazy and how can I support you? And then by the same token, it puts me in this odd relationship with my own traditional past, you know, because the ideal before was to become a modern person, to modernize, to become contemporary and to leave the past behind. That was the ideal on immigration. It can't be anymore. And I think especially as we recognize the violence of the colonial project, we need to be able to see what has been there traditionally, each from our own location and then each differently, and then what to do with what's been there traditionally. So when one has to take responsibility, for instance, I'm thinking about um, that beautiful novel that Paul Yee wrote a couple of years ago called A Superior Man, where he's uh, trying to think about you know, the Chinese-Canadian soldiers. Really, it's a beautiful novel where his earlier work was much more trying to recuperate this sort of masculine Chinese, you know, railway railway and laundry and restaurant hero. Now, in this new novel, he's seeing, oh my goodness, we're implicated in this terrible project of of, of land theft and we need to be responsible. He's trying to think that through. But I think the only way to do it is to go and to be in it and look at it. Oh my goodness, we, you know, you have to tell the story of it. And you have to really look at yourself Mm -hmm. in the mirror when you're telling that story. I think that's the only way to do the work. Mm -hmm. Um, And so likewise with Tea House, I think each time we do, you know, when we were organizing symposia together, for instance, we would collectively try to choose themes, right, that would sort of bring some of these contradictions to to the surface so that we could have these conversations and kind of take the problem and, and turn it in the light, you know, to see, oh my goodness, I am horribly implicated in the colonial project in this way. So, for instance, in the building of the railroad that opened, that, that, you know, the Chinese sojourners worked on in order to open up the West, facilitated the European project of opening up and capitalizing the the West and turning sacred land into real estate, Mm -hmm. right? Expropriating it from Indigenous people and turning it into property. It's no longer sacred land, but now, you know, and especially watching all of the land speculation that's been happening, especially, you know, in Vancouver, where i living before I came here, to see how all of that stuff is sort of st- still playing itself self out in the present in the most grotesque mm-hmm. kinds of ways that are not going away anyway soon and how one is deeply implicated. We have to be able to talk about these things. Does going back to tradition for a Chinese-Canadian fix anything? Probably not. Um, does supporting some indigenous folks in the recuperation of their traditions help? I think so. I think so. I hope so, because I've, I've been doing that. So I I hope so. Could I be wrong? Maybe. But I can't see that yet. Mm -hmm. And until, you know, maybe, but maybe not.
3: One thing that is striking me in everything you've said so far and in my own experiences working with you and with Tea House is uh, this focus that you're talking about, um, about the body. Because for me, one of the most meaningful aspects of attending Tea House talks and symposia and, and working with you, Larissa, has been that it provided a space for feelings like to be Uh a person with a body Uh in the academy which is so often obsessed with the mind and dissociating that from the body and feelings and and like like we certainly you know there was lots of joy but yeah lots of pain lots of grief and i i am so appreciative that there was a space that you opened up for all of the people who were able to participate in these events to have feelings whether they're difficult or you know joyful and wonderful uh so to my mind thinking about like the the difference between what's come before and what you're bringing to this work is opening up that space in academia for the presence like, of bodies bodies that look different bodies that feel different but just acknowledging that like we all we all have them and like yeah. they're so important in yeah, this. Space. yeah
0: yeah mm-hmm. thank you so much for saying that micah Thank you. That's what I've been trying to do, Mm -hmm. and obviously that is also a frightening and worrisome thing because you're not supposed to feel in the (laughs) academy, traditionally (laughs) speaking, right? That that the traditional academy demands the body be put aside, demands the heart be put aside. But I think that the whole body is a thinking, you know, that we are Mm -hmm. thinking beings in the whole body, and that if it's all just left up to what you know goes on in the old noggin, that's highly insufficient and reproduces you know, all of the violence that we, that we, that we're trying to, exactly. Mm, Yeah, Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And so I don't know that we fully get to break the hold of it, but at least we can try, Mm -hmm. right, and try to make that kind of space so that, so that we can have those feelings and that we can have them, you know, in our own bodies, but also that we can have them collectively together or have them differently perhaps, but that they can move through us Mm -hmm. collectively. And I do think that that is part
3: of the work and mm-hmm. I see it, I mean I see it in you know I, th- I think about you know graduate students who I was writing alongside with when I was going to school here and like I can see I can see it in the work I don't know if you feel that way too but mm-hmm. in the writing just like, like whether it's academic or creative that uh, yeah I think it really has opened up a space to challenge those kinds of genres and and yeah, bring that emotional presence to the work itself whether it's oh, thanks, my in the conversation or in writing mm-hmm. or in, in the podcast and I, yeah so I, I i've just been so appreciative to mm-hmm. to have the opportunity to experience that
0: thank you thank you thank you for saying that mm-hmm. because it's also a way of knowing right mm-hmm. and speaking of the patriarchy that a big part of you know the University, the academy traditionally has been such a patriarchal, monastic and patriarchal institution. Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad that you feel that you feel. (laughs) (laughs) I'm very glad that you feel and that you feel that this has been feel period, (laughs) (laughs) and that you feel this this has been possible. You know that Mm -hmm. tea house has made that possible, and that it opens up. I hope other ways of knowing. You know, so when we talk about knowledges that have been repressed all of the knowledges that we have through, through feeling are such a big part of that.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, I have a question for you that is sort of building on these ideas about the past, right, and sort of whether to let go of the past entirely to move on or how to struggle with the future and the past or the present future and past, and that is the idea of archive.
0: Uh-huh. Aha! <laughs> yeah,
2: <laughs> which is um, central to, I think, your creative work and also Tea House. And we've had a lot of conversations around archive yeah, with Tea House, yeah. even the more theoretical aspects of building an archive and also the practical ones. Yes. And so I'm wondering if you could speak to that, how you think archive is important and how and in what form, I guess, yeah. for T house. Yeah.
0: Thank you so much, Rebecca. It's such an important question. And it is indeed something I, I think about a lot. I'm cooking a little talk on archive for one of the next things that I'm oh, going to do. So, so it's been on my mind, and I've been going back and looking at my dairy down, my Foucault, uh, um, <laughs> to think about that. To think about the archive, because I mean, one of the things that you know, I was so aware of in the writing of the Lost Century, and for sure, going back and reading some of that, oh, that, that dreadful. It's not dreadful. Actually, it's fabulous. It's just that it's only part of the theory. One of the things that I become so aware of is that. The archive is not the thing. Mm. So you never, you don't actually ever get to go back. Mm. And I'm so aware with the lost century of how much of the, its work is driven by, by my own desperate desire to, to know the past, that I'm never going to actually know. So it's that same thing of that search for a resolution that you know you're never going to have. And if you try to, If you, you know, if you chase it too hard, and certainly if you think you've grasped it in your hand, you've actually killed it. So Mm -hmm. it's really important to be aware of that, that the archive is not the past, but it's it's a trace of the past. It gives you something from the past. And that the archive is also a a power relation that one doesn't get ever to be free from. Mm -hmm. And so when you're in the archive and you're attending to what has been left for you to find. Above all, you have to be aware of the kind of world that those who built the archive imagined that they were driving towards when they set up that archive, and one's own interests often against that archive and yet you're seeking evidence for the past and the future that you desire mm-hmm. in this archive that's like doing something trying to do something just trying to keep it from you mm-hmm. actually that's interesting and yet it's got the stuff it's got the things it's got the photographs and the letters and the you know the descriptions and the um, all it's got all of the little bits and fragments that seem so material and so real you're like this is it I've got it I've got it I've got it this is I got my hands on it I know it now and then you look and you're like better let go just (laughs) like let go now there is let go because there's something else is at work there and you just need you need well the best I've come to is you need your imagination Mm -hmm. and you need that poetics that I was talking about earlier to kind of intuit guess surmise what's not there Mm -hmm. or what's on the edges of it you know the energies that sort of flickering on the edges of it and because we're writers we give that energy content which is a terrible, risky, violent thing to do. And yet it's a risk that I think one needs to take mm-hmm. because, because I've trained this long to be able to see. And if I don't say what I see, then what am I leaving? But I don't know what power mess i'm leaving behind something i'm sure something terrible but you can't know what you don't know so you know this is how i think about the archive but thank you for the question about the pragmatics of it because mm. we're also in the thick of that around mm-hmm. tea house aren't we as i was in the thick of it when i was working on the last century you know it's how do we wrap this how how will we leave this and where should it go who should oh it's a terrible christian christian words i was like who should shepherd it like who should be the shepherd <laughs> who should that's terrible. <coughs> we need a better. Well, there's a word that oh gosh. But you know that question of what, you know, what where to what it is, what it's made of, materially for I me mean, for us it's a lot of sound recordings, which yeah. is so interesting. And a little bit of video, but we gave up on the video early because mm-hmm. it was it just it didn't look good. Mm-hmm. And we realized, you know, ish, kind of midstream that it would be better to focus on an audio archive that we could get more and better audio. If we worried less about video, mm-hmm. and so a lot of it is audio, and there's some textual archive as well—a lot of meeting notes and plans, and you know, uh, preliminary notes for things, interview questions. Mm-hmm drafts of introductions to things and that kind of stuff but I would say that the 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 meat of the archive we're leaving the best stuff is going to be the audio stuff and then so the pragmatics of it there's there's so many so I mean a lot of the things that we're struggling with now are questions around transmission copyright permissions you know who where does it go what kinds of contractual covers do we need to leave over? We can't have we can't have none because we're housed. You know, we we're housed in a in a university, so we need to be really aware of the apparatus that we're housed. We're housed in a university. We're funded by SHRC and the CRC program. You know, we're in an English department. These are all like structural structures, power structures, but also institutional structures that bind us and they're colonial structures as well, but they're also democratic structures and they're institutional structures within the framework of an understanding of institution that is open and moving. And so there's possibilities in them, but it's not it's not fully open-ended, it's constrained in both positive and negative ways. And so all of those kinds of things need to be considered. I don't have an answer for them. Um, I know, I remember, Was working with the two of you when we were really trying to figure out okay well what do we do when we're inviting somebody to come speak at tea house and if we don't want to be the kind of appropriation as usual kind of institution but we need some kind of an agreement with the people who come and speak to us what should that look like as a construct as a contract in the western legal tradition what should that look like Mm -hmm. and then what can we get the, the contracts unit of the University of Calgary to provide for us that they would be content to, to let pass as well? Mm-hmm. So speaking of colonial violence, right, I mean, it's fully imbricated in all of these processes. And yet there are better and worse ways of doing these things. Mm-hmm. So I guess all I can say right now is these are considerations. And I do not know what the H to do, um, and I hope we can talk about that <laughs> sometime very soon because decisions will need to be made yeah. as to where where the things go, and also all the materials. Like you know, we also acquired a lot of equipment. Like mm-hmm. all of this, I mean, one of the things that has made tea house possible has been a a very generous grant from Shirk from the CRC program that has provided you know among other things salary for, for me for many of the research assistants as well. How um, many equipment, mm-hmm. and the equipment remains? Where does that go, mm-hmm. and what do we do? Who should that go to mm-hmm. in the aftermath? And space has been modified, right, as well to make to make the space that we call tea house. Mm-hmm. And where should that go? Who should inherit it? And how should that be? And um, I know that these are things; these are questions that have unfolded at the CRC. The program is not so very old. I think I'm I'm like. A, a second or maybe a third generation of CRCs. So it's oh. pretty new. So I know that some of those questions have unfolded around other CRC projects across the country, and I will do more brain picking to find out yeah. where what has happened to the spaces and equipment and outputs of those projects. Yeah. But those are those are archival questions yeah. that are absolutely bound up with all of those questions of you know of power and memory and futurity. Mm-hmm. You know, as you suggested mm-hmm. in your question. Mm-hmm.
2: I mean, it's really interesting because I've been thinking about the Tea House Talks podcast as being, as you, like, this is a really integral part of the Tea House Archive. And then when we talk about it somewhere, we say, I don't know, in my mind, I just think, well, it's going to live on on the internet. But you're, it has to be housed somewhere. It has to be
0: housed somewhere. And it doesn't
2: just live on on its own. And it needs to be led by someone to <laughs> not use this <laughs> shepherding word. Um, but I think that that's really, those questions are really complicated as well. They are. Yeah.
0: Yeah, they're really, really complicated. And I mean, for this project as well, which has been such a collective effort on so many fronts, you know, like, I mean, yes, it's been my CRC. I've been quote unquote directing the project, but in fact, the labor has been done and a lot of the thinking and leadership has been done by graduate students. Mm-hmm. And, and now the two of you as postdocs mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, just sort of that question of, you know, where the knowledge like, insofar as it is property. Mm-hmm. And because we live in a in this, you know, regime of intellectual property, mm-hmm. right? Those It's not a non-question. Mm-hmm. And yet, by the same token, the drive to... I hope that Tea House is not a drive to produce property because mm-hmm. that would be really crummy and I would be so upset. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But we don't get to not consider the property relation. And so speaking of, you know, land theft, right? It's connected to all of that same kind of that so many um, you know, Indigenous scholars are, are think, trying to think about is, it. like, well, what do we do with the fact that the land was land, it was something that could not be owned, and then the colonizer arrived turned it into property. And so here we are now in a parallel situation mm. where there is a set of relationships that have unfolded in language and in the body, um, that that have left a trace. A lot of it audio, but, you know, as we've said, in various media. And I don't want to think about it as property, but it's because we are in the institution. It's absolutely good. And because it's been funded, you know, all of that stuff, we're not free of it. And we have to consider it. And I don't have an answer. We'll have to make some decisions about these things. (laughs) And they will be difficult, and there will be no evading a certain violence in their making. And yet to not make them would be a worse violence because Mm. if the work isn't somehow housed or otherwise taken care of. Then it becomes ephemeral, it slips away again. And you know this is one of the things that, that we were really trying to think about when we did the Wisdom Council Symposium, right, Where we were talking about. And actually, I was just re-listening to your uh, interview with Anne Stone, mm-hmm. where you were talking about Wisdom Council and saying, you know, we've seen these things come back so many times, but because they haven't been well-documented or the documents haven't been well-kept, we've lost them again. Mm-hmm. And so I don't want that to happen with this. I want it to be available, you know, in all its beauty and all its imperfection with all of its flaws and its omissions and the things that we, you know, the things we saw, the things we didn't see, the things we heard, the things we didn't hear. Mm-hmm. Um, but the best that we've done with the capacities that we have in the historical moment we're living in to try to pass on the best of what we can pass on.
3: May I ask a, a follow-up question to that, Lisa? Sure, yeah. Um, so in, in the last century, uh, I noticed that much of the book is, is interested in exploring the importance of ancestral memory and oral history. Uh-huh. And as we've just been talking about from its beginning, the TEos project has been committed to archival work. So you've spoken to this a little bit, but to you, is there a distinction between memory and archive? And what can an archive offer that memory alone cannot, mm-hmm. and vice versa?
0: Mm-hmm. Of course, there's a distinction between memory and archive, but that's an excellent question, Micah, thank you. Yeah, of course, there's a there's a distinction. So, I mean, I would think about memory. There's a number of different ways of thinking about memory. I mean, memory memory can be that thing that, that just rushes up, unbidden, that spontaneous. I deal with it a lot in Saltfish Girl, actually, right? You hit by a smell of salted fish or durian or whatever, and it's like oh my goodness, that girl, or that party, or, you know, my, my mom's, the dinner my mom made me when I was five or whatever. Um, so there's that kind of memory that's just, um, that belongs to another world and yet it's so much a part of our, our own bodies that I think, you know, that's the best kind of memory. It's not trying to do anything, it just comes. And then there are those kinds of memories that we actively conjure towards a project of some kind often. So I'm trying to decolonize, so I want to to remember in a decolonial way, you know, I remember the day that I fought the man by doing da 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 da, right? And it's a different kind of memory from the memory that just comes unbidden. And then, so I would say that there are at least those two kinds of memory. There's probably others. I mean, there's memory, we, the kinds of memory we, we come to when we're talking to one another, too. You know, when you see someone you haven't seen for a long time and it's like, oh, I remember that time, you know, that me and Rebecca met for coffee to talk about her dissertation and we discovered something about the male protagonist. Well, right, well, <laughs> I remember that. And it was like, oh, my goodness, he's really like, we were laughing our heads off. But I wouldn't remember that if I didn't see Rebecca in front of me now. Um so those are those, those kinds of social memories as well that we remember in certain spaces and places that are probably connected to those kinds of smell mem- you know they're they're social they're human they're, they're they're the memory that builds human connection whereas i think the archive is something quite different because it's records, mm-hmm. and one it, well, it has to be housed somewhere. You mm-hmm. can see I've just been looking at Daria, <laughs> <laughs> and, um, so it has to be. It has to be housed somewhere, and where it's housed, if somebody's going to be able to look at it again, is institutional, mm-hmm. and institutions have gatekeepers, and gatekeepers mm-hmm. get to say. You know, what goes into the archive and what doesn't, mm-hmm. and who gets to look at it and who doesn't, and what day of the week, and how they listen to it, and whether or not they can take notes or photographs or whatever, right? So all of those kinds of things, an archive is a much more constructed, political, power-infused, institutional thing than a memory. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's really important that we that we make a distinction mm-hmm. and that we be able to talk about that distinction, and we engage both, mm-hmm. and that doesn't make the archive garbage just because it's, you know, it's imbued with power mm-hmm. still. And this gets right back to the conversation we were just having mm-hmm. about and we We are, you know, you are both postdocs and instructors in this department, I'm a prof here. We have power in this institution. Mm-hmm. We also have, an, we have power, we have a responsibility to exercise it in a certain kind of way, including towards the production of an archive mm-hmm. for this project that I think has been important and done good work but in so doing you know when we do that it will also reproduce power relations patriarchies and colonialisms that we may not desire mm-hmm. but that nevertheless are sort of built into the structures of the thing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I don't necessarily think that's true of memory. It can be, Mm -hmm. but I don't think it has to be. I think memory is a lot more, it's a lot more capricious. It's more fleeting. Mm -hmm. It's less subject to the sort of the the large forces of Mm -hmm. institutional and state power. And it doesn't mean that one can't put memory in an archive, it becomes something else, right? You know, you write write down your memory of what you had for dinner yesterday even, and you stick it in an archive. It's doing something different from just the having of the recollection.
3: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was just thinking as you were talking, like... like like all of the memories I have of being in tea house events, for instance, and because they were recorded, you know, twenty years ago, if I went and listened to those, you know, the, the what kind of gap would be there between like the authority of the recording and what was said and what I remember yeah. and how I felt versus how I might feel then. Yes. So I just I don't know. I think it's also amazing to that that we have all of this material. Yes, uh, but I also think that you know that uh, i i don't know i also like really just cherish <laughs> like my own experience yeah. without you know having to i don't know compare it up to like the reality yes <laughs> of yeah what might have actually what right. might have actually been or what i might how I might encounter it in a different moment. That's right. Yeah. And it's
0: important to remember that the recording's not the reality. right
3: right. but right. it is evidence. Yes. but it's not the reality <laughs>
0: right. yeah. And yes. so it's just yes. important you know to remember that it's gone th- you know it goes through yeah. the, all the technology of the recording yes. and then when it's stored, it will also be it will carry the, the freight of its yeah. storage, however it's stored. Um, and I mean the thing that I really wonder about you know, is what if I remember something about this conversation today and 20 years ago, 20 years later, years ago 20 years later mm-hmm. I come back and listen and I don't hear it yeah. and it's just not there but I remember it acutely what does one do with yeah. such a circumstance because I think this happens all the yes. time
3: yeah and then to you it is as though it really happened yes you carried on exactly soul, you know, yeah. yes. as though it did yeah
0: and have become myself. you know have continued to unfold myself as though it did and then to go back and listen and kind of it's like oh my god that was never said yeah. but I recall it so acutely. cute Uh I think this happens all the Uh time
2: yeah Uh I did want to ask you a question about um, the structure of events at tea house so another kind of pragmatic question I guess and so you know tea house through its evolution has experimented with different forms of events had some that were symposia that had panels in a kind of more traditional academic sense Mm -hmm. and then ones that teamed up with graduate student conference and then the last one wisdom council the last symposia that we had here at the university of calgary had three days one was a closed door round table discussion with the participants then one day was the sort of more traditional panel discussion and the third day was these recorded interviews and i would like to know and maybe people listening to this episode would like to know who are also trying to organize in these community projects. Yeah. What do you think in terms of format has been helpful for uh-huh. that kind of
0: relationship building uh-huh. and knowledge sharing? That is such a great question. Thank you, Rebecca. Yeah, so worth going over time for to think. We <laughs> learned so much, right? Yeah, yeah. Through all of these different forms. And then of course the the podcast project yeah. emerges out of Wisdom Council exactly. in addition to un- because it was unfolding in co- during COVID, I think, you know, when we suddenly were not able to be together in a sound studio as we are today. Mm-hmm. Um but it 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 made the whole podcast thing um seem all the more necessary. And the best and only way to work through Mm -hmm. COVID. So what do I think of all of the different forms and what do they produce? I mean, okay, as I said, you know, a couple of questions ago when I was talking about the paper hearts things that I organized with Colin, that that just sort of seemed to be a necessary thing to do that gave rise to the later symposium structures where I realized my job was to set up conversations and not decide answers. And to be sure, to invite, to to invite and carefully curate an arrangement of people so that the right conversation could come out of it. And so I think the symposium form was really good for that because, so usually we would do our symposia, we'd usually do them over two days. I think we had maybe one that was three days. Do we have one that was three days early on? I think if we did, it was way too tiring. We Cut it down to two really quickly. Right. And then I think we might even have had some that were just one because yeah. they are they are exhausting for everybody concerned. Mm -hmm. But I think the good thing about the symposium form is it allows you, I like a sympo, I prefer a symposium over a conference, Mm -hmm. a a curated symposium over a conference, because it allows the agency of the project, so Tea House, to sort of decide who's gonna be present to make sure that a range of positions but also personalities and ways of being in the world are all there at the table and that there isn't a preponderance of one way of knowing over the other mm-hmm. at the table and also that it's quite small mm-hmm. and so that there's a there's an intimacy and a sense of a sense of being together for a short time for something special. And something we would do with a symposia always was make sure that there was the loveliest food and drink that we could afford and bring to the space. To me, that was really key, because that mm-hmm. it's also relationship building. I didn't. I learned this from, from Roy Meekie primarily, okay. um, who used to organize in this kind of way. He would always make sure that there were always lovely things to eat and drink, because when you're enjoying yourself, You make better connections and you talk about, you know, what you're having and it's collegial and convivial and that also sort of feeds into a willingness to to be together in a good way and to unfold good conversations together. Um, So that was really important. And then the other thing that was good about the symposium structure was that if it's a small number of people, the same people over a day or two, different configurations. It's great if you can hear from the same person more than once. They don't have to be on every panel, but if they can be on two, that's great. Or be on one and moderate one or something. Or be on one and give a reading. So that you get to see more than one facet of the same person. That person gets to develop themselves in relation to the others there at the time. I think that that also makes a huge difference. And that if it's for more than one day, so there's a sense of being together for something intense and special for a brief time over which something momentous happens in which we get to be together to express ourselves and to you know talk about our ideas to exchange them to to argue to fight if we need mm-hmm. to but to have those conversations that that go deep you know so i think that's what's important about this symposium and i think what's important about the public symposium is that if there are listeners in the audience then they get to witness everything that i just described and to sort of see these relationships developing together. And insofar as there's Q&As and things to be part of those conversations and part of the community that's made over that day or two or three as well. So I think symposia are really, really good for that. What was special about Wisdom Council, which Rebecca, as you said, is the last one that we did, where we invited, I can't remember, 10 or 12 senior practitioners over the course of three days. And we had one day that was public like that, right? So, that it would involve a public, the conversations could unfold together, people would get to witness. And then we had one that was in camera. My hope with that was that it would intensify the relationships among the people there and that they would be able to speak a little more freely without having to be concerned if there was a journalist in the audience, for instance. Not that we want to keep journalists out, I think journalism is very, very important. But I just think, you know, when we have these opportunities to bring people together for, um, a short space of time. Sometimes it's good to experiment with form because different things will come out of it depending on how it's structured. So I really hoped that in those in-camera sessions that people might feel, you know, that they were able to be a little more frank with one another, that they'd be more willing to say things off the record that would still then remain in the memory, but not necessarily on the archive, Mm -hmm. that might feed further conversations later, either in public or in private, Mm -hmm. that could be productive and useful. So that was my hope around the in-camera sessions. Although, interestingly, what happened, because we had student participants as well, and the senior participants really wanted the students to be involved, and the students wanted to talk. Mm -hmm. And so that day actually became something kind of organic and quirky. And not what I had imagined, mm. but still productive and great. Yeah. And so the other thing that I think is really important, and I guess good for the person in the facilitator role, do listening, 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 and attending, attending. It's like, do I is this a moment where as facilitator, I push the group to do what was planned? Or is this the moment where I am witnessing something curious and interesting and worth exploring? Am I witnessing that? And do I just let it run? because something might come out of it. And of course, you can't know for sure until you've had the day and you've lived it out, so you can't know. Mm -hmm. But I think the more you practice as a facilitator, the more you begin to sort of have a gut feeling for, okay, this conversation's just going off the rails, I'm gonna call it and request a switch of direction versus there is something magical that's just kind of rising out of this collectivity and I need to shut the F up, back off, make space and just let it happen and to be able to tell that difference yeah. right and so i feel i feel like that was what happened on that second day where something just sort of started to rise and i was like hmm, i could force this but i'm not going to yeah And uh, i'm just gonna let it and then the third day that we had at wisdom council where we came into these rooms the room where the studio the sound studio that we're in now there's four of them in this hallway and we put two people into each one over a set of appointments a set of times over the course of a day and people recorded these one-on-one conversations that um, listeners can listen to they're the earliest of the tea house talks now um and i think that those conversations were just extraordinary but I think that part of the reason why they were was because we'd had the two previous days where he had done these different things and had these conversations already and relationships had built. And now one-on-one, the people who were talking to one another, some of whom had known one another for years and others who were just meeting for the first time. But they all had these really interesting, productive, one-on-one conversations with one another in these little rooms. And... The useful thing about podcast obviously is it leaves an archive there's something there for the for posterity you know that that students can listen to next week or next month or 2 years from now or 5 years from now I hope 10 years from now I hope 20 I don't know that I hope so but the recording leaves le- leaves that 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 trace right that then can be listened to you know on whatever the time scale is of the listener Rather, they didn't have to be there at the symposium. And so the different formats give, produce different things. Mm -hmm. And it's possible to make generalizations about the kinds of things they give, but not absolutely. And that's part of the beauty of living things out together, right, in collectivity.
2: Yeah, that's wonderful. I do remember with the Wisdom Council Symposium and some participants were nervous about that interview part because uh-huh. it's it's something they hadn't done before. It's not something they were used to, at least in a symposium structure and so I really remember them being a little bit nervous and asking me because I was working (laughs) as a graduate student at the time what kind of questions they should ask and worried that they didn't know the person they were interviewing and by the time it came around they had built such a connection with each other and you know were bringing up different conversations that they had had privately or in the um, in camera sessions and I just thought that was so interesting and wonderful.
0: And yeah, we, we magicked something, didn't we? We magicked something. <laughs> we did.
3: I like to think so. Yeah. <laughs> um, would, it be, would it be okay if I ask one last question that builds on this discussion? And it's just something that I really wanted to ask you. One, of, one element of your writing that I most admire is your inclusion of the spiritual or supernatural. So do you hold space for the mystical or the spiritual in your roles as a professor or community organizer, uh. or in a project like this, Because we're just talking about this magic that can happen Yeah, this, yeah, oh, yes. intuitive sense of yes. what, uh, where things can flow. I don't know.
0: You got me, you got me, you got me.
3: <laughs> I believe
0: in magic. I do believe in it. That's a really tough question, Micah. You know, I, I struggle, and I, maybe this is, you know, for me, I think something that. Partly because I was raised as a secular person. Partly because it's such a strong ideal of the academy to be secular. And I guess because of all the long histories of damage that religion has done, I find, well, religion and spirit are not the same thing, though. I do still find the turn to spirit difficult. But one of the things that I have learned a lot and has been really important to me in the last little bit, I mean, it was was happening... Oh, still, it was happening during my PhD years. It was was certainly happening in those years in Vancouver when I was, you know, working in the cultural communities where Indigenous people, certainly, but people from various cultures would want to do spiritual work. And then around the time that the land acknowledgement becomes kind of important and then, you know, uh, expected. In some communities in Vancouver, We would do more than that and often invite an opening by an elder who would often do spiritual work, sometimes in the form of a blessing or a a prayer, which for me initially, if I'm honest with myself, I found difficult because I spent a few years in Catholic school as a child and so remember the sort of pressure to prayer and what that meant in those contexts. But by the same token, coming back to our conversation about tradition earlier, I could see that for Indigenous friends, colleagues, and elders. It was very, very important, and that it was connected to a recognition of ways of knowing and ways of being on land that precede the colonial project, and that this is very important as part of the work a very initial step you know we've talked about the problem of decolonization a lot it's become such a problematic word and yet i still still think it's important as a project i don't think we're very far down the track but it did seem to me that that work was important to make space for as a condition of my own responsibility as a racialized settler and so suddenly here in doing this sort of work that i think of as political in the first instance i'm opening the door to a relation to spirit so that is what i feel as an academic, I can say, ah, if I take it and tur- turn it one to sort of think about my life as a writer, I suppose there has been from the get-go because all of the little chthonic critters have been running through my fiction ever since when Fox is a Thousand, the very beginning. So there's something about the way that I'm that I inhabit the creative that perhaps does make space for that thing that you're calling the spiritual. I think that we're living in a, in a historical moment where there is a there is a there's a turn happening towards this this spiritual if you like that emerges from this other relationship to, to intellect and to feeling as you were saying before i think these things are connected and i but in an academic context i still feel really funny and yet clearly it's there at every turn of this crew in my creative work so so i guess so yeah
3: maybe it's better to maybe it doesn't have to be the spiritual maybe it's just something outside of ordinary reality or something outside of the experience
0: it's perhaps connected to the question about tradition again i think in another way that you know if there are ways of knowing that are non-rational right Mm -hmm. and because we're so trained and i believe in reason and goodness only knows especially in the wake of you know, all of the the crayhem around COVID, like, science please. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> and yet, of course, as somebody who comes from a marginalized background, it's important to recognize that there are ways of knowing, and you know, and as women as well, that there are ways of knowing that precede or exceed the rational that are not chopped liver, that matter. And uh, what one calls that and the forms that it takes I think I'm still struggling for language four Mm -hmm. and sure you, you can see t- you can hear my discomfort with the term spirituality that doesn't mean I shouldn't take it up I'm just uncomfortable but that's okay discomfort is all part of the journey right that's all part of it so it's, a, it's a great question
2: thank you so much this has been such a pleasure yeah. talking to you in an official way and I'm sure our <laughs> conversations will continue I'm sure they will for the rest of your trip here yes
0: I'm Hi. sure they will thank you both so much for such thoughtful questions and for your hard work on the project over all of these years oh. in and in, in all these different um, in different forms as well, because you've worked mm-hmm. for the project in different ways, mm-hmm. you know, as, as, as graduate student assistants initially and now as postdocs. I really, yeah. I don't know what I would have done without you. Oh, thank you. I don't thank you. I yeah,
2: you. I mean, this is, it's just, you've been such an amazing mentor. I mean, of course, you were both my dissertation supervisor, <laughs> but I mean, a mentor through Tea House as well. And I think a lot of the, things that you've been trying to share and the practices you've been trying to share with grad students I feel them you know and I feel um that I've learned so much from you oh,
0: thanks Rebecca
2: yeah, thanks, yeah. Micah.
0: thank you thank that you mean so much thank you
1: We hope you enjoyed this interview with Larissa Lai by Rebecca Gillen and Micah Jacobson. I am Mahmoud Ababni, and you are listening to Tea House Talks. We recognize the generous support of the Canada Research Chair's program and the Social Sciences and the Humanities Research Council. We also appreciate the support of the Faculty of Arts and the Department of English at the University of Calgary, where our offices are housed. Tea House was run by Larissa Lai, Shui New, Rebecca Jelaine, Micah Jacobson, Shazia Hafiz, and Mark Herman Lynch, Ben Gan, Ryan Stern, and me, Mahmoud Ababneh. Thank you for listening.